Good evening, everybody, and thank you for coming. You know, 15 years ago, after India stepped out of the nuclear closet, um, there has been this big debate as to what sort of a nuclear power will India become. Historically, India has been viewed as a reluctant nuclear weapons power. Um, it has had this posture of recess deterrence. And by recess deterrence, I mean the nuclear warheads were kept separate from delivery systems, the uh, fissile material cores were removed from the warhead. So um, historically, India was seen as a recessed nuclear power, as a reluctant nuclear weapons power. And the assumption for the, uh, for the, for the greater part of the last decade was that um, India would continue down that tradition. And um, the reasons for that being, well, two reasons were advanced. One was um, that there was an institutional path dependency. And the other, uh, and this was uh, advanced by Ashley Tellers from the Rand Corporation, in a very compelling book, and he summed it up very nicely when he said, India's operational posture will be strategically active and operationally dormant. And the other, the, the other part of the argument was that uh, there is this um, strategic culture of restraint that um, sort of guides the Indian elite's strategic actions. And so for all these reasons, um, you know, uh, the scholars and the, the analysts in, um, in the Beltway in Washington felt that um, that India would be um, a sort of benign nuclear power that would buck the trend of the P5. But over a period of time, what has happened over the last decade is that India's operational practices have begun to change, nuclear operational practices. And um, um, in fact, uh, India's national security managers have made it very clear that they take the demands of nuclear operationalization very, very seriously. And now the balance has shifted to the other end. You have scholars and analysts in Washington, especially in the Beltway, who are very concerned and who believe that Indian national security managers have sort of not understood or not absorbed the lessons of the nuclear revolution. And India is about to replicate uh, the paradigm of the P5. And it will just be another nuclear weapons power. And um, they basically highlight three aspects. One is a whole series of technological developments that are now poised over the next decade to give India, in theory, a, first strike, a, a splendid first strike capacity. Second, um, India is moving towards higher operational readiness, just the way the United States and the USSR. And finally, um, there is a, a, a dilution in India's no, uh, India has had, historically, it's had a no first use nuclear doctrine. And the assumption now is that there's been a gradual dilution in this no first use doctrine. And, um, and now, under certain circumstances, uh, they, uh, folks believe that um, Indian leaders would initiate nuclear weapons use first. And th they find this very, very disturbing. And above all, um, they, what they also perceive this problem of, of a principal agent problem, um, meaning that the political leaders don't really understand what's going on. And the Indian nuclear establishment, there is this military-industrial complex uh, that is running amok. And so, you know, prior, prior to India stepping out of the nuclear closet and uh, formally claiming nuclear power status in 1998, this strategic establishment, this the scientific military establishment was depressed. In other words, it was sort of, you know, it was also hidden away. And the state could not do a whole series of things. But now that the constraints are off, and now that India's economy is performing so well, the assumption is that, that the strategic enclave, this clutch of scientists and the, and the um, um, research and development agencies, have sort of uh, a, free, a carte blanche to do whatever they so feel like. 
So um, there was this, what I call this neo-nuclear alarmism in Washington as to what India might do and might not do. So where do I stand? I, I, I believe that um, the evidence is far more conflicted and the data are far more conflicted. And if you examine the data in discrete bits as black and white, yes, there is room for alarmism. However, if you contextualize the data and anchor it to India's institutional practices, I think there is far less room for alarmism. Um, the problem with the social sciences, the way I see it, is that you can find strands of data to support any argument you want. And so I think it's very important to read the data holistically. Um, and I'm going to present you some of the evidence. Can I just ask what the splendid first strike? Oh, the, the splendid first strike uh, it was uh, that India, in theory, would be able to conduct a, first, um, a nuclear first strike against a country such as Pakistan and destroy its arsenal in a first strike, or the bulk of its arsenal, and then sit and then sit back and fundamentally, you know, the idea is that if Pakistan has, say, if a country has, say, 100 warheads, you preempt your adversary by launching, by initiating a first strike and destroying the bulk of the arsenal. And, and then, of course, and, and you're left, and the, and the country that initiates uh, a first strike, a nuclear first strike, basically has the initiator's advantage. It can destroy, um, you know, the bulk of the arsenal of its adversary and then from that position of advantage, uh, dictate the peace or coerce the adversary. So it's called a splendid first strike. Could you just re-say what you said about social sciences? Yes. Because Claire was just joining us as a social scientist. Oh, well, the argument I was making was... (laughs) No, well, it might be contentious. Um, The social sciences, uh, well... In, 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 in academia, well, in, in academic circles in the United States and in the Beltway in Washington, the argument is made. Sir, when uh, you say the Beltway, do you mean the CIA or where people live in the suburbs? What do you mean by the Beltway? That's oh, the Beltway? Okay, so the Beltway is just, you know, just the way you have Ring Road. You have a Ring Road in, in the UK. The Beltway is, is what the Ring Road is. So everybody inside, uh, who up all the think tanks and, this, and the... Uh, clutch of, um, yeah, the intelligence agencies and the military intelligence agencies and the American establishment is called the Beltway. That's, that's a colloquial, I mean, that, that's a colloquial um, use of the word. So anyway, what I said was that the, that the data, that the argument is, there's this new alarmist nuclear, uh, alarmist argument that's advanced in the case of India that it's um, replicating the, uh, the posture of the P5, especially the United States in the former Soviet Union during the height of the Cold War. And my argument is that the data are conflicted and, and the data are far more nuanced. And very often when social scientists make the argument, they collect strands of data and they connect it in, in a very compelling argument just because they can. And you can, al- you can always find data to support any argument you want. And, uh, but that's a problem. But even in the hard sciences, there's always this circle of uncertainty. And, but, you know, as, as, a, as, a, well, as, as a social scientist myself, we try and pretend after our research is done and published that you know, once you remove all the scaffolding that we are far more sure than we actually very often are. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm far more skeptical. So, um, so all right. So, so there are three arguments made. One is that India's... And, and these arguments about... Um, are actually made in the Indo-Pakistani dyad. They're not made in the case of the Indo... Chinese uh, nuclear competition, simply because the asymmetries that operate in China's favor are huge compared to India. So uh, folks don't see this, this destabilizing competition happening in the case of India and China, at least not just yet, but they primarily see it in the case of India and Pakistan. So, the, so there are three arguments being made. One is that India is developing a series of short-range uh, ballistic missiles. 
Uh, second is it's, it's building, and these in theory could be armed with nuclear weapons. Two, it's developing multiple re-entry vehicles. And uh, multiple re-entry vehicles allow you to place multiple warheads on a single missile. And, um, and there are two kinds of multiple re-entry vehicles. One is just a multiple re-entry vehicle whereby uh, if you, say, place three or four warheads on a single missile, you can target one. You, you can use the three warheads or four warheads to target a single target. So, for example, if you're attacking London, the missile will deploy three warheads to different parts of the city and destroy it more systematically. Or you have something called MIRV, independently uh, targetable vehicles, and these can attack different targets. So one could attack Oxford and one could attack London, if you will. Um, and uh, during the Cold War, for example, MIRV missiles were, cons were considered highly crisis unstable because in theory a country could launch um, ballistic missiles with MIRV warheads and, all, and destroy an adversary's um, um, uh, nuclear arsenal very quickly uh, in, in a first strike. So these, so these were considered extraordinarily de destabilizing. So India is um, developing these. And finally, India is building a ballistic missile defense. It has been, it has in initiated this program over the last uh, 10 years. And, um, and if some news reports are to be believed, um, it may begin deploying a part of this missile defense very soon. So, when, so, so basically what folks are saying is when you look at these three technologies in conjunction, when you look at short-range ballistic missiles, multiple re-entry vehicles, and ballistic missile defense in conjunction, and I'll, I'll unpack this, why and how they're saying so. Um, these, in theory, would give India a splendid first strike capacity against Pakistan. Now, with short-range ballistic missiles, um, you know, the argument is if, if a missile is only 150 to 100 kilometers, um, you're obviously not targeting China. If it's only 150 to 100 kilometers, you're, you're obviously targeting battlefield targets. And the argument is that once you build these missiles, you're going to be able to arm them with nuclear warheads. Now, the problem with this argument essentially is that you have to look at the warheads that India has in its inventory and the payload capacity of some of these new short-range ballistic and cruise missiles. The warheads that India has in its, in its arsenal wave, I mean, it has two kinds of warheads. One are air-delivered warheads by aircraft, and the other are, it has uh, first-generation ballistic missiles. Now, for the aircraft, the warhead weighs anything about 1,000 to 1,500 kilograms. And for the short-range ballistic missiles that India has today, the warheads weigh about 1,000 kilograms. Uh, you know, the, the payload capacity is one ton. The new systems that are being developed have a payload capacity of 200 to 400 kilograms. So fundamentally, that requires that India should be able, in theory, to miniaturize those nuclear warheads. But there is very little in, in, um, uh, in, in terms of the evidence to suggest that Indian scientists could miniaturize warheads for these short-range ballistic missiles in the absence of actual uh, nuclear tests, hot tests. In theory, you can you know, develop a design in the lab. You can uh, test different components of it. But scientists always have this big problem. How are you actually going to... How will the system actually perform in the field? And if you go back into India's history and look at the 1974 test, it has had two rounds of tests, 1974 and 1998. In 74, India conducted a new efficient test, and it declared it successful and said it was 8 to 12 kilotons. But now there is evidence actually um, to suggest that the yield was just 5 kilotons. So it was a fizz, and it almost failed. Um, and if you look at 1998, India again conducted uh, two rounds of tests, and of them, I think, only one. And there was a fission test, there was a boosted fission device, and then there was a thermonuclear weapon. 
and both the boosted fission and the thermonuclear device did not work well. They, were fi- they, they failed. So the only design that India was left was, you know, was tested successfully was the fission design. So if you're looking at the history of the tests, you know, there is very little confidence that you can actually design miniaturized nuclear warheads without field tests. So I'm, I'm very skeptical of the argument that uh, India could miniaturize its warhead size from one ton to about 200 to 400 kilograms without field tests. The second is multiple reentry vehicles. Now, these are, in theory, these are very destabilizing. And India has announced that it's going to develop multiple reentry vehicles for its intermediate-range ballistic missiles. Now, intermediate-range ballistic missiles are about 5,000 kilometers. Now, what, and so, so these are, so the, so the missiles about 5,000 kilometers are, are obviously geared or aimed towards China. Uh, because India, at this point, has no capacity to take out any of China's main industrial urban targets. It doesn't have the missile um, uh, capacity. Um, what analysts fear, and what lo- some of the academics fear, is that um, the same multiple reentry vehicles could be grafted onto the short-range ballistic missiles. And once they are grafted onto the short-range ballistic missiles, India will then require, acquire a splendid first-strike capability against Pakistan. The problem, again, is uh, I don't think folks have actually uh, looked at the empirics of the case. The intermediate-range ballistic missiles have a, uh, have a weight of about 60 to 70 tons. They are designed to lob three warheads that weigh one ton each. All right? The short-range ballistic missiles that India has today can only deploy one ton. They only weigh about 12 to 20 tons. So you simply can't graft a three-ton payload onto a one-ton capacity missile. Any payload engineer will tell you that um, this is, you have to completely redesign a ballistic missile to do that. You have to build something from a scratch. Now, you can do that. So in theory, I mean, in the future, in 10 years down the road, India could perhaps do that. The problem, again, is that, there's, that India's ballistic missile program has huge reliability concerns. Um, from all the tests that we've seen today, um, at, just by looking at the launch failure rates, about 50, 20 to 25%. This tells you nothing about everything else that could go wrong with the ballistic missiles, at the staging, at the, at the separation of the reentry vehicle, at the unlocking of the safety mechanism inside a vehicle. We don't have any data for this. In fact, um, based in my interviews with the Indian military establishment, there are huge concerns inside the Indian military that the missiles will not, that the, that the failure rate could be as high as about 40%. <coughs> So there's this big debate inside India. How do we need to go? About, how should we go about this? The, the Indian military, for example, wants more tests. Uh, no Indian missile has been tested more than five times. In the case of the U.S. and the U.S.S.R., the, on average, the missiles were tested anywhere between 15 to 80 times. So I'm just trying to give, trying to give you a sense of scale. So in other words, if India were to, India in theory could kind of scrap its current um, inventory of missiles and completely go for a new inventory. But that would, take, that would set back the whole program by about at least a decade. So it's not easy. So basically what the, what the critics are saying is that it's very easy for India to graph payloads from one to the other without, without actually going into the details of how this might be done and what the problems this entails. And finally, you have a ballistic missile defense. And India has been pursuing a two-tier ballistic missile defense. And um, again, once, if you have a very successful uh, ballistic missile defense, it's just like an air defense system. Um, in theory, you can launch a first strike, destroy about 60 to 70 percent of your adversary's targets, and then sit back very pretty and um, take out the rest, the incoming attack with your ballistic missile defense. The problem over here is that, um, uh, again, um, 
there have been only one part of this missile defense has been tested. And there have been seven tests, over six have been successful, in quotes. They've been rigged. Um, they've been, uh, the, the interceptor missile has only been tested against Indian missiles, of which all, all the details have been known as flight trajectory, and every, every technical detail is known, separated by a merely 70 kilometers. And there has been no independent verification by the user of the, of the military that these systems work as advertised. There's, so in other words, there's enormous skepticism inside the Indian government and the military that these systems would ever work. And so the, uh, there is no support to the civilian development agency that's actually building uh, or you know, testing some of these missiles to see, I mean, th there is no realistic sense as to when this might be deployed. And uh, in, in, in the Indian context, there's a principal agent problem where the politicians very often sanction projects, and, but they don't really understand uh, you know, what the technical challenges are or what it actually entails. And, um, and, and these projects continue for about a decade, two, three, in the case, for example, of the light combat aircraft, the main battle tank. And eventually, the projects languish, and they're canceled. So I suspect that might well be the case. Can't they just buy them from Raytheon? Well, are the Raytheon ones successful? Do we really believe so in the American case? Well, the Americans are not selling beyond the point. But um, even if there were, there are Raytheon systems deployed all over the place. I know, but but for example, you know, there was this Pac-3 during the. Um, or would uh, Ray, could Raytheon sell them to India? I suppose they would now. But the, the PAC-3, in fact, they have offered the PAC-3. But, but, but the, as the U.S. defense, you know, Raytheon boasted that its Patriot systems um, had a, about 60 to 70% success during the first Persian Gulf War. And then the American Defense Secretary admitted that there was probably a 0% success. So, uh, you know, there are huge problems with America's missile defense, too. The second, the, the, the second thing is about operational readiness. And this has enormous implications for crisis instability. Now, let, let me just give you a brief historical background as to why this is a problem and how, how this problem has, has basically evolved. So India began weaponizing nuclear weapons, uh, its nuclear weapon designs in 1989. And from 1989 to 1998, um, uh, India was called a de facto, was, was understood, India and Pakistan were understood to be de facto nuclear weapon powers. Uh, or, you know, there was this regime of opacity where they insinuated they had nuclear weapons and everybody outside, especially the United States and um, the UK as well, and most, most of the countries believed that uh, these countries were capable of deploying nuclear weapons, but, uh, everybody, but, but the weapons were kept demated. In other words, the fissile cores were not in, inserted into the non-fissile trigger assemblies, and they were not mated to um, the aircraft. So this was uh, supposed to be a, sort of a passive institutional safety measure because it sort of you know, dampened the, uh, you know, the heat, if you will, and the fires in, during a crisis, and it would take a while for them to assemble the arsenal and before, you know, before the arsenal could actually be ready and used in, in war, unlike the American or the, or, the, or the former Soviet Union where the weapons were ready to go in 15 minutes, which was extremely high, you know, which, which introduced enormous instability. So this continued for a long time, and the assumption was that the Indian program was, was led by a bunch of philosopher scientists who were, you know, who were very proud of their work as nuclear scientists and designing these uh, weapons, but at the same time had this great sense of responsibility, like Robert Oppenheimer, if you will, um, that you know, the, these things should be kept away from the military, they should not be deployed the way the United States or the, or the UK or, the, or France or, or, or the former Soviet Union have done. 
But the reason, actually, one of the reasons why these weapons were kept demated also was because for the longest time, uh, when the outside world presumed that these were, that India was a de facto nuclear weapons power, India did not have a capability to actually, it, it took about seven years for them to weaponize and acquire the capacity to deliver these weapons safely. So, in other words, when, when, when the United States uh, assumed that South Asia was the most dangerous place on the earth and the India and Pakistan were on the verge of nuclear weapons use in 1989-90, um, what they did not know was that India did not have a capacity until 95, 96 to actually be able to, um, you know, uh, deploy these weapons using aircraft uh, safely and reliably. Um, so, so one of the reasons was that the weapons didn't exist uh, in a weaponized form, which the world didn't know. The other was that the Indian leaders were mortified that if they were found out, uh, it would bring the, the United States would come down on them on, like a ton of bricks. Of course. Um, so when American visitors used to come down to Delhi, and you know, the idea was, yes, we are a very responsible nuclear weapons power, and because that's what the American visitors wanted to hear, and that's what they published, and that, that became a part of the legend of the lore. Um, and in fact, I have an article actually coming out in International Security that talks about this uh, this decade of the 1990s. You know, what it means to be a recessed nuclear weapons power, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, um, but. In, after 1998, uh, some of this, uh, it took, um, you know, this practice continued because even though India declared that it was a nuclear weapons power, the political leaders were far more focused on um, sorting out the differences with the United States and the Western world and, you know, trying to seek accommodation as a de facto nuclear weapons power. So they, they weren't bothered with the operational issues. In 1999, India went to war with Pakistan over what is called the Kargil War. We can get into, into the details of the war in the Q&A. But that was the first time when uh, the Indians realized that they had to get the operation, the arsenal up to speed. And the funny thing was that even though they had the technical means to do that, uh, they had never done any operational planning with the Air Force. They, I mean, the pilot knew how to kind of deploy the weapon and was trained how to do it, but the Air Force hierarchy did not know anything about operational plans. Nothing was, nothing was worked out. Um, the scientists had drawn up paper plans and how long it would take to assemble the weapon. Um, and, but there was no command and control, as we understand. So the assumption was, on paper, that it would take India about 72 hours to assemble the weapon and uh, uh, basically launch a retaliatory attack to a, to, a, to a nuclear strike. It actually took the Indian scientists about a week before they could even assemble the weapon. And this again in 2001, 2002, there was another crisis with Pakistan. Uh, and again, it took them much longer. And the Indian military ultimately concluded that uh, this was a very dangerous state of affairs. And, uh, um, you know, as Clausewitz said, um, in, in war, the simplest things are the most difficult to do. And, and that's, you know, and, and the military realized that, well, this, this works beautifully during peacetime, but in the event of a crisis or a war, you know, we could be uh, caught flat-footed. So we need to kind of change the procedures on, as to how we ready the arsenal. So, uh, and of course, they also judged that, you know, India has a very weak, uh, has a very uh, weak uh, transport and, and communications infrastructure. And they realized that, well, and in, according to the internal studies showed that if there was a symbolic strike on, on India, um, you know, they, India could possibly ride out a nuclear attack. But if there was a well-placed attack on two or three major urban centers or command control centers, uh, the Indian military would be probably paralyzed and there would be social and urban chaos would completely overwhelm the military. And it would, might not be able to launch uh, a second, uh, you know, a, a retaliatory attack. So the procedures were changed. And now the procedures are that with any conventional mobilization, the weapons will be assembled. And in the next phase, they will be mated to the delivery systems, which is the ballistic missile. Or they will be co-located with the aircraft. 
And in the third phase, they will be mated to the delivery system. And in the fourth phase, they would be, and they'd be mated and dispersed. And in the fourth phase, the, the military would get access to a part of the code that would help it unlock the weapon before launch. So, but again, this, this, this does not pertain to peacetime. This pertains to wartime and operational readiness during an emergency. Uh, and during peacetime, the warheads are still kept demated. But there are two things that are happening. One is that India is now moving towards acquiring an SSB, a sea-launched ballistic missile capability, just like in, in the UK. And once you have a sea-launched ballistic missile capability, um, you, once your submarines are out at sea, you really can't, you're not really communicating with your submarines in real time. So you really can't just send a helicopter with a warhead somewhere in the middle of the sea. The warhead is obviously made it to the, is to, to, to the missile system. And so you really can't have a demated um, arsenal the way it exists today. That's one. And two, uh, the, uh, uh, some academics make the point that some of these practices are now migrating from the sea-based system, from the proposed sea-based systems to the land-based systems. So what the Indian Defense in, um, Research and Development Agency is doing is they're building canisterized ballistic missiles. In other words, the ballistic missiles are going to be placed in containers. And the argument is that once the ballistic missiles are placed in containers, like containers and submarines, you really can't demate the warhead from the ballistic missile. But the reality is that, for one, India's SSBN capability is at least a decade away. India, for the first time, has just begun testing its first uh, nuclear submarine, ballistic missile submarine. It's begun sea trials. It's a prototype. It's a technology demonstrator. It has, it's a small vehicle, about 6,000 tons. The, the reactor is about 90 megawatts. It has four missile tubes. And the missiles have not been tested from the submarine yet. Uh, and they've only been tested using underwater pontoons. So yes, this possibility might come about. But remember, we're assuming that it will be a seamless process towards operational capability. In the case of China, for example, China, until today, never sent out its first nuclear submarine on an operational patrol because there were so many problems with the system. So we, number one, we need to wait and see as the system becomes operational. We should, you know, let's wait for the data to emerge. The second is that Indian national security planners at the highest levels make a distinction between land-based missiles and sea-based missiles. They understand that sea-based missiles cannot be uh, demated, but they do understand that land-based missiles can be demated, and there is no reason to mate warheads onto the missiles. Even if you have... The idea of placing a ballistic missiles on land in canisters is fundamentally to provide protection for the missile against heat and dust and, you know, the elements. And also, once you mate the warhead, you want climate control so that the warhead is maintained under certain conditions. And um, so that's the reason why you want containers. And then it, it, it's very easy, relatively easy to move around in transport during a crisis. Um, so that's the reason. But even if a missile is containerized, does not mean that the warhead needs to be pre... It's not as if the container is sealed. The warhead can always be mated towards a later stage during times of operational readiness. So there is no evidence to suggest that that's actually happened. And the critics actually say two things. One is, we know nothing of India's permissive action links. Permissive action links are electronic locks, electronic locks on, onto warheads, um, or, uh, which enable use. So the argument is, we know nothing about India's permissive action links. All right? And the second argument is, we know nothing about India's personnel reliability programs. Right? And because it's a huge issue. I mean, how do you trust the people who are taking care of the nuclear arsenal? In the case of the United States, we have problems even today. Just recently, we, have, you know, we had, uh, they found out that folks were cheating on the exams and there was drug abuse and so on and so forth. So, we have, so in other words, the argument is 
if the problems exist in the United States, they must surely exist elsewhere. True, maybe. But uh, we don't have data on that yet. And the absence of data is not, uh, you know, the, the absence of evidence is not evidence of, of, of a problem. We, we need that data. We can't just speculate and infer on the basis of nothing. I'm not saying that it could not exist. It probably does. There are huge problems. I mean, every, every, every country, every society. But we need data. That is the key. And, and of course, um, um, there is no... And, and then again, of course, the other problem is that if you have higher... If you, if you pre-mate the warheads, so long as the, uh, so long as the missiles are placed in, the, in, in their hides or in their secret um, uh, storage depots and, you know, secure, that's not the problem. If the missiles were in constant patrol, if they were in constant alert... Then there, are like, there, then there is a likelihood that the warhead might be stolen, they might be attacked by terrorists, there might be sabotage, or there might be an accident. But if the missile is not in patrol during peacetime, then the, the likelihood of an accident and some of these problems are mitigated. So there is no evidence yet that India maintains its missiles in constant patrol on a constant state of operational readiness. In the case of the United States, the assumption was that if the Soviet Union launched a first attack, the United States, the U.S. arsenal would be destroyed on the ground. So the U.S. operational procedures were that the entire U.S. arsenal or land-based missiles, for example, would be launched within 15 minutes, launch on warning. The president would have to make a decision. The, the U.S. would detect uh, an incoming Soviet missile attack and launch all its missiles within 15 minutes. And that's the reason why the warheads were constantly mated onto the ballistic missiles and why they were trained and why a, a portion of the aircraft were constantly flying 24-7 to, to prevent against a Pearl Harbor, a nuclear Pearl Harbor from happening. That's not the operating philosophy over here. The whole operating philosophy over here is that India will absorb a nuclear strike and then launch a retaliatory attack. So I, I haven't seen any evidence to the effect. Equally unsettlingly, um, India, you know, historically has um, um, had this unmitigated, no first use doctrine. It will never use nuclear weapons first, but it will, but if nuclear weapons are used against India, it will retaliate with a nuclear attack. Um, and now we're a period of time, the Indian government has issued a series of caveats, if you will, which have sort of uh, now, uh, you know, as if, which now make, leave it doubtful that, there are, that India will not initiate nuclear weapons uh, first under, under any circumstance. And um, it, this happened first time in 1999, where the Indian government published something called the Draft Nuclear Doctrine, and where it said it would not uh, attack a non-nuclear weapons power with nuclear weapons. However, that, that condition did not hold for a nuclear weapons power, and that, did not, and that condition did not hold for a non-nuclear weapons state allied to a nuclear weapons power, just in the case of the, you know, some of the caveats that have been issued by the United States. And then, then subsequently, in 2003, the Indian cabinet then issued another a draft on the operationalization of the Indian nuclear doctrine, which actually then restored the no-first use, but said that uh, no-first use would not be valid in the event a power or a non-state entity used chemical or biological weapons against India, which is, again, classified as weapons of mass destruction. So, uh, so obviously, now the, the critics are, you know, up in arms that this is a dilution in no first use doctrine. Um, and the only entities one can think of is Pakistan and China, because that is the operational focus of India's arsenal. So the, the problem is that both China and Pakistan are signatories to both the Chemical Weapons and the Biological Weapons Convention. And neither proposes or has proposed to use any of these weapons. So I don't see what the problem is. 
then the reason is, why are the Indians, why have they done this? And there are two explanations for that. And one is by Scott Sagan from Stanford, where he says, this is an example of social isomorphism, you know, where one country and a bunch of power elites are mimicking the example of uh, the American doctrine. You, you, know, you observe what the others are doing, and you simply mimic the practices, because it's a rhetorical device that you pick up because that's the thing to do. That's the way, at the rhetorical level, that's how states behave. Um, the other is, again, what the Indian military officers admit in private, which is that, again, this is a rhetorical means to widen deterrence to the widest possible circumstances. And this is not how the state would actually respond in practice. But again, it, it can be still be dangerous because it can send the wrong signal. But folks are not really concerned about this. What they're really concerned now is by statements from India's um, nuclear, um, um, uh, from India's Strategic Forces Command. The Strategic Forces Command is a, is a special entity within the military that actually plans nuclear operations. And officers from the Strategic Forces Command have said, India will not initiate uh, a war with nuclear means. However, that does not rule out the use of precision conventional means to take out nuclear assets as far as Pakistan is concerned. Now, this is very dangerous because if you're actually using your conventional, if you have an overwhelming conventional advantage, asymmetric advantage, and, um, and you can very well use your conventional forces to attack somebody's nuclear forces, which then creates something what we call a use them or lose them dilemma. Right? If, you, if my weapons are going to be destroyed, I'm better off using them first. So it creates instabilities in the case of Pakistan. So in theory, again, this is, ext this is extremely unsettling and, you know, but, but, but the interesting part is that if you look at India's conventional war planning and its nuclear war planning, they're compartmentalized. And the Strategic Forces Command that manages nuclear operations has, no, has very few connections with India's conventional military. The way India's... Um, let me show you an organizational chart. This is um, a picture of India's higher defense uh, organization, and this is where the Strategic Forces Command is. It's a part of the integrated defense staff, which basically coordinates operations between the Army, Air Force, and the Navy. But in reality, the Strategic Forces Command has no linkages with the integrated defense staff. All right? The Strategic Forces Command reports to uh, a, a chairman, chiefs of staff committee, who is a nominal head of the armed forces. And the chairman, chiefs of staff, talks to the National Security Advisor. So in effect, what is actually happening is that the Strategic Forces Command is controlled by the Prime Minister's office. It is kept separate from the conventional military. So you really can't, so in theory, you have a lot of people, officers talking about their retired officers talking about their pay grade. But whether they can implement it in practice, institutionally, if there are no lateral linkages between this and this, there's nobody to do any coordination and planning. So it's very difficult. And the Strategic Forces Commander is junior in rank to the chiefs of the Army, Navy, and Air Force. He cannot direct them to do his bidding. So it's, 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 it's far more complicated. And people, um, I think, very often pick up things at face value without looking at, into the institutional details. And once you start impacting the details, I think the situation becomes far more complicated. All right, and finally, um, the argument is made uh, as I said, that um, India's nuclear weapons program, its hardware developments are being run by a, uh, by a group of scientific agencies uh, that have basically run amok inside the state. They have unlimited budgets, unlimited organizational power, and the prime ministers and the political leaders and the cabinet really don't understand what's going on and they have no control. 
I think the critics have the argument exactly backwards. And the problem is, and the reason is this. During 1974 and 1998, when India had, was developing nuclear weapons secretly, um, the prime ministers authorized it, but they had no means. But because the whole program was so super secret that only about five or six people had a God's eye view of the program. And it was directly controlled by the prime minister's office and through the scientists. The military knew nothing about it. And because the, whole pro because the prime ministers were so obsessed with secrecy, they could not institutionalize any oversight controls within the state. So this creates a classic principal-agent dilemma, where the principals, in theory, are in charge, but in practice, they really don't know what's going on. And, for, and, 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 because, and, and, and so because there were no institutional controls in the state, the prime ministers and the political leadership just bought whatever the scientists were telling them. They had no means of verification. They had no independent means of verification. And this, had, and this led to huge uh, um, problems in India's weaponization during the 1990s. And I, I can explain the details of that. And, at least, and it led to massive delays. And when India finally tested its nuclear weapon designs in 1998, the critical boosted fission design and the thermonuclear, fission, uh, thermonuclear fusion des, uh, weapon design were failures. And, and eventually, uh, there was a huge controversy inside the Indian scientific establishment about the veracity of these tests. And um, the national security advisor was clueless because, because there was no institutionalized mechanism that he could turn to to verify the claims of the conflicting teams of scientists. And so since then, the prime minister's office has made a very concerted effort to institutionalize oversight over these scientific agencies. And for the first time, in India's history, the military is now a part of that decision-making process. So you have institutionalized, some institutionalized oversight as to what these scientific agencies are doing. So it's, it's not the way it operated in the past, where this, where this strategic enclave, uh, the scientists could just sell whatever they could and there was no independent means of verification. It's actually turned the other way around, that there is a lot more scrutiny on what the scientists are doing today, and especially from the user agency the military, because the military, you know, uh, because, the, because for, the, for, the, for the military, the greatest concerns are operational usability and reliability of the weapon system. And unless that is established, the scientists can't get away. So I think the institutional controls are now stronger than ever. So, so for a variety of reasons, I think a lot of these arguments are overstated. Um, the reality, so just to sum up the main points, the reality is that India's fundamental nuclear reality has changed, the way it approaches nuclear weapons. It is a de facto nuclear weapons power. It's not legally recognized under the NPT, but for all practical purposes, it's recognized. Um, and the Indian national security you know, manages, I mean, a lot of the organizational and the technological changes that have taken place over the last decade are retroactive attempts to, make a, to fill the gap between stated versus actual capabilities on the ground. And um, the, uh, the Indians are sort of uh, correcting for this. Uh, Prior to 1998, when India developed its arsenal in secret, there was this overwhelming focus on this disaggregation and demated forms in passive safety institutions. But these are not operationally very viable. So once you declare yourself a nuclear weapons power and say that you're going to be able to do a, certain, a whole series of things in, in, in response to a nuclear attack, you have to be able to execute them. So that forces you to make certain operational changes. But the argument that they're throwing the baby of safety out, or they're, or they're throwing out the, um, uh, the, 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 or they're jeopardizing their, their safety institutions, or they're moving towards a first strike capability, 
um, or that, um, that, that um, institutional controls are completely lacking. I think the folks who are making the argument are looking at the data very, very selectively. And I think if you look at the data more holistically, I would be less concerned. Thank you.